Good morning, Christ Community Church. Wasn't that great to see all those photos of the kids at VBS? We actually had, well, we, the final count was about 110 kids, and if God continues to bless our VBS this way, we're going to need to have way more of our church involved. As you can see, the kids were coming out of everywhere. We actually had a real-life Hungry Hungry Hippo. Do you remember that game back in the 70s, 80s? Did you see that? We had these uh, boards with those, those platforms with casters on it, and the kids would roll out with, uh, we used laundry baskets, and they would clamp down on all the balls, and then they would be pulled right out. You guys remember that game, right? Hungry, hungry, nobody played Hungry Hungry Hippo? Anyway, I thought it was really great. So we might incorporate that for uh, staff, maybe a Hungry Hungry Hippo tournament. I really enjoy VBS. Uh, Part of it is not only just because I see the church coming together. It's one of those things that just there's, no matter what your skill or strength, there's a place for you to serve in an event like that all week long. Uh, But what I particularly like about it is getting to speak with the kids. I I love, and if you work in children's ministry, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Kids do not have that grown-up filter that we seem to get all of a sudden where they want to look like they know what they're talking about and all that. And, you know, you ask them any question about God or anything, and you get the greatest responses from them, right? They don't feel like they need to impress you at all. They just come out there with it. Uh, And as a matter of fact, Lori and I have one of our favorite books in our library. It's called Children's uh, children's Letters and Prayers to God, and it's just a collection of these great things that kids come up with. So I thought it was a kind of an appropriate week to share some of those with you, because I got some of these responses from our kids even this past week. Here's this great question from Nan. She says, Dear God, who draws the lines around the countries? <laughs> That's a good question, Nan. And here's one from Anita. I love her concern for her dad. She writes, Dear God, is it true my father won't get into heaven if he uses his bowling words in the house. <laughs> Got to wonder what Anita's mom is saying about what her dad says, huh? Um, here's one that I like. Dear God, writes Norma, did you mean for the giraffe to look like that, or was it an accident? <laughs> this is my wife's favorite, this next one by Eugene. Dear God, he asked, or writes, I didn't think orange went with purple until I saw the sunset you made on Tuesday. That was cool, and he underlines that there. That's great. I wouldn't think orange and purple go together either. But here's one that I personally like. Dear God, of all the people who work for you, I like Peter and John the best. Rob. Now, this poor next kid, he needs to understand the doctrine of grace a little bit better. Frank writes this. Dear God, I am doing the best I can, Frank. I love it. I love it. Um, And here's one that only a boy would say. God, the bad people laughed at Noah. You make an ark on dry land, you fool. But he was smart. He stuck with you. That's what I would do, Eddie. Good job, Eddie. (laughs) And finally, Donna, she gets that God is, in fact, the creator of all things. So she says this. We read, that's supposed to be Thomas. Thomas Edison made light. But in Sunday school, they said you did it. So I bet you stole your idea. Sincerely, Donna. <laughs> I, love, I love that about kids. You know, where do they get these ideas that, that there's, there's, there's such this enthusiasm and unrestrained faith in God? And they don't question it at all, right? Now, I know what, what you're probably thinking the answer is. The answer, well, obviously, their parents taught it to them, or their Sunday school teacher, or their siblings, or, or maybe the pastor taught it to them. 
when you think about it, that's not really an answer to the question. That just puts the question one step back, doesn't it? Because then the next question is, well, then who taught the parents and who taught the siblings and who taught the pastors, right? The point I'm getting at is that we would have no real understanding of who God was unless God chooses to objectively make himself known to us. At best, if that doesn't happen, at best what we have is we can speculate about what he might be like. We can imagine maybe he's like kind of what we would be like, but maybe on a bigger scale. But without God objectively revealing himself, we can only hope that we're right, but not really know for certain. And that's why Psalm 19 is such a great psalm. That's why Psalm 19 is so significant that we chose it out of the five psalms that we're going to cover in our parables and poetry study this summer, because that's exactly what Psalm 19 is about. It is about God revealing himself to all creation, or through all creation, to humanity. Now, thankfully, as you read, as, we've been, as, been, as Ken read it to us, and as actually we've been singing, if you've been listening to some of the songs we sing, we've sung some of these words, God is anything but bashful. He's gone to great lengths to make himself known, both in general ways and in very specific particular ways. So our psalm this morning divides nicely into two larger sections, verses 1 through 6. We call it uh, God's natural revelation of himself, or we could say God's general revelation of himself. And then verses 7 through 11, God's special revelation of himself. So God's natural revelation and God's special revelation. Let's pray and ask the Lord that, uh, to bless the teaching of his word. Father, we thank you that we could gather week in and week out, that we could gather every day this past week with uh, over a hundred kids to talk to them about your self-revealing nature, that you desire that humanity, your creation would know who you are, and you've made it clear in the very world we exist in and the very word we have. Spirit, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you would have to say to us this morning as we open up and study together Psalm 19. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's look at Psalm 19, the first six verses, God's natural revelation of himself. You know, we need to always ask the question of how we know him, and he reveals himself very clearly. Now, it takes both his natural revelation and his special revelation, but those two combined gives us a full picture of what God is like. We can understand, as Donna rightly did, that God is the creator of all things just by simply looking around, but we don't understand necessarily, as Frank did, or maybe misunderstood, that God does have a particular standard. Not certainly by just looking around the natural creation, it requires something more, so God gives us both. In the verses 1 through 6, every age needs this reminder that creation everywhere speaks of God's existence. You know, when you really think about it, there are two ways people are going to respond to creation. And we see it, we saw it in ancient culture, just like we see it today in the modern culture. On the one hand, we might be tended, we might be tempted to explain everything away as just simply chance or biological evolutionary processes. So we don't really see a purpose in them at all. We don't think about it beyond it being part of the physical world. 
On the other hand, people might go too far the other direction, and they see too much purpose in the creation. They begin to be tempted to worship it or believe that it sets the mandate for their life. You see that in, you know, in certainly Western culture. We have our, uh, in the mag- uh, newspapers, you have your astrology chart, right? Or in Chinese culture, they have the same kinds of things. So either they get no purpose to it or they give too much purpose to it. But really only a theistic worldview, a view that accounts for God, like the Christian worldview, is moved to true wonder and joy at the thought of their maker when they look around at the creation around them. Now, I wonder if you've ever considered that to be one of the purposes of creation. That one purpose of creation is to testify to God's existence. So that all of humanity would know, at least at some rudimentary level, that there is a God. Now in antiquity, it wasn't just God, it would have been gods, but in almost every culture in human history, you can see that creation's job was successful because every culture would look around and believe in higher beings. Now, we know Scripture says that that God has allowed the creation to bring testimony to him, not only from the Old Testament, but in the New Testament. Paul writes to the Romans in Romans chapter 1, verse 19 and 20. It'll be on the screens behind me. Paul writes this, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. Verse 20, For his invisible attributes, namely, in particular, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they, Paul's referring to the entire human race, are without excuse. So not only in the Old Testament, but in the epistle to the Romans, Paul is writing that creation itself testifies to the existence of God, so that All of creation, all of humanity is without excuse that it does reveal his eternal power and divine nature. Look back at Psalm 19, particularly verses 1 and 2. Look at all the verbs that the psalmist writes in there. The the creation declares, creation proclaims, creation pours out, creation reveals all the fact that there is God. The phrase pours out there in verse 2 suggests the the irrepressible bubbling up of a spring and therefore the unfailing ways in which day after day the creator's mind is being revealed. Have you ever seen a sunrise that wasn't spectacular? Just about every sunrise and every sunset is, as Eugene said, amazing to the eye. Now theologians have long since called this uh, natural revelation or general revelation because it, it is in nature, it's around us, it's, 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 and it's general in that it tells you certain important things about God. The very diversity and complexity and the beauty and the design of creation cries out that there must be a creator. It's, it's so simple a child can get it, right? We actually sang it this morning in our very first song, Indescribable, that God made the stars and he knows them by name. Again, it's so simple, a child can get it. Like Jeff, I love what he says to, in his letter to God. Dear God, it's great the way you always get the stars in their right places, you know? It's so simple that a child who looks around and sees connects the dots. 
Yet, as I said, sometimes as we grow up, we start creating these grown-up filters, and we start creating explanations that don't quite fit the bill, but it makes more sense than a supernatural being, a supernatural being that holds us accountable, a supernatural being that we are then responsible to is uncomfortable. And so maybe it's more befitting a modern mind to think that creation does not come from a supernatural being by whom which we are accountable to. Creation maybe just came by itself. Listen to Oxford zoologist Richard Dawkins in his book, The Blind Watchmaker, in his chapter, I think it was chapter one, entitled, Explaining the Very Improbable. This is what he says. Dawkins writes, the science of biology, quote, biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. Let me read that again because it's, it's just a strange, it's a strange quote. Biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. He goes on to say, but don't let appearance deceive you. Instead, all things were created by the blind watchmaker, which is mutation and natural selection. Now, if you're familiar with Dawkins or any of what's been called the New Atheist Movement, uh, you might be familiar with why his book is called The Blind Watchmaker. The Blind Watchmaker, the title of Dawkins' book, was in direct contrast to one of the counter-arguments that theists and Christians have made against the process of evolution. And the the story goes like this. If you're walking along the beach and up from the ocean, a wave puts in front of you one of those uh, old-school timepieces, a watch, are you more inclined to think how amazing that out of the ocean the glass molecule combined with the gearbox molecule combined with the print molecule and the number molecules and created a watch. No. When you see something of such complexity, purpose, and design, you automatically realize that there's a designer and creator behind that product. Well, Dawkins dismisses that. He believes that, no, no, there was no real divine, intelligent mind. It was a blind watchmaker, and that blind watchmaker is mutation and natural selection. Now, I don't mean to get into a science lesson, but this is the, this is the cultural air we breathe, so it's helpful to know. The, the problem with Dawkins' premise and the new atheist premise is that it even goes against a scientific principle of Occam's razor. Now, if you're familiar with science, you learn this in the first year of science. Occam's razor, started by Thomas Occam in the 14th century, basically goes like this, that the simplest explanation of a phenomena is usually the right explanation of the phenomena. The more the explanation needs to take into account other variables, more likely the explanation fails the scientific test. Well, if you compare... Occam's razor to the theory of evolution, one being that time and nothing, to say nothing of the fact that time itself is a thing, but we won't even get into that, that time and nothing makes everything, or that there's an intelligent mind that created all things with design and purpose. By Occam's razor, the theory of evolution fails. But the point is simply this. Scripture says from the beginning, Psalm 19, look at it again in verse 1 and 2, that all the heavens, the skies, the day, the night, all testify of God's wonder and existence. It's almost self-evident. It's everywhere. 
Now, verse 3, there's been some translational challenges with verse 3. Uh, depending on which translation you have in front of you, uh, it may, basically they're saying, it seems to say that these bodies are silent witnesses to God's presence so that his glory and handiwork are shown. Uh, I think the NIV and the NLT translate this the best. So I'm going to read you the way the NLT translates this. They speak, they being the stars and the heavens, they speak without a sound or a word. Their voice is silent in the skies, yet their message has gone out to all the earth and, and their words to all the world. Okay? Um, I have no idea what the ESV is trying to say. Uh, this is the way the ESV translates it. There is no speech. There are no words whose voice is not heard. I just think that's a bad translation. I think the point made by the NLT is exactly correct. That all these silent witnesses, that they don't have language capability like we do. They don't say a word the way we understand words. But their message is going out constantly and it's global. No one can deny from the testimony of these witnesses that there is a divine, intelligent mind behind all of this. The point is that nature is a testimony to all humanity of God's existence. The sun itself. Have you ever thought about that? This thing out in the sky generates four trillion, trillion watts of energy every second of the day, every day of the year for thousands of years. Four trillion, trillion watts, enough to provide all the energy needs of our planet for half a million years being generated every second. And according to Psalm 19, he's like a a bridegroom coming out, obedient to the Lord. Look at verse 4 to verse 6. The end of verse 4, in them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber on the day of his marriage, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Even the sun serves. The most powerful source of energy known to humanity is an obedient servant to its creator. You know, if you think about verses 1 through 6, and if you're not a Christian or you're not even a theist, I wonder what you think about when you look at the world around you. I wonder what comes to your mind when you ask the question, well, where does it all come from? Does it actually have any meaning? Or is everything in our world simply a biological accident without any design or purpose? You know, for thousands of years, I know that is the cultural stew that we kind of live in, isn't it? That by and large, that's what people think. Evolution seems to be the modern way we think about things. And, and But you realize that up until the 16th century, that that's not the way the world thought. Up until the 16th century, all cultures would realize that the heavens declared the existence of a God, right? I'm not saying that it was all everyone agreed in the Christian God, but they would have looked around at creation and acknowledged that there was something beyond the physical things we understood. But that all changed in the 16th century with a Polish astronomer named Nicolaus Copernicus. Are you familiar with the Copernican theory? Any former astronomers or science students here? The Copernican theory revolutionized the world. The reason I'm bringing this up is we think that the world, the way we think about things, is always the way the world thought about things and don't realize that that's not it at all. 
Do you realize for millennia, the entire course of humanity believed that creation testified of a divine being until Nikolai Copernicus made his discovery, and his discovery was simply this. Up till the 16th century, all of us believed the geocentric theory of the universe, that the earth was at the center of the universe, and everything rotated around the earth. After all, we were God's special creation. Everything was made for the human race, and it made sense that the earth was in the center of the universe. That's where the expression comes from. You think you're the center of the universe? It has part to that. But in the 16th century, Copernicus realized that that's not the case at all. As a matter of fact, the earth is not the center of the universe. The earth is one of thousands and thousands, millions of other like planets that are orbiting something else, orbiting the sun. Now, we might think, and? That's because that's what we've grown up always knowing. But the entire, I mean, Western civilization believed that this was the case because God had made humanity, earth is in the center of the universe. When Copernicus realized that that's not the case, everything changed. People began to think, wait a minute, if, if the earth is not the center of the universe, then is this all of creation not been specially designed for us? And do you realize from Copernicus' discovery, we got the show Star Trek, Okay, here's where the connection comes from, folks. Bear with me here. This is important. Copernicus realized we're not one planet. We're not a special planet. There's thousands of planets like us. And then the idea became, if we're just one of millions and there's nothing special about us, maybe there's other civilizations out there and we have to find them. That's where the whole launch of NASA and SETI came from, this mindset that the Earth is one of millions of other planets, and you're seeing it in the news all to this day. But it all came from Copernicus' discovery. But the more significant thing that came from that was Western civilization realize we're not all that special, are we? If we're just one planet of thousands of others like us, then maybe there's not a real special God who really loves us and we're a special creation. And everything began to shift. Friedrich Nietzsche, the Greek, uh, excuse me, German uh, philosopher from the 19th century said, since the time of Copernicus, mankind has been falling from the center to an X. And what he meant by that was we're lost we no longer have a sense of we know our purpose. We know what, where, we, where we fit in this creation. We are just lost. If you've ever gotten the sense in our culture that people are unanchored and just adrift, this is one of those reasons. Because up until that pivotal time, there was a cultural understanding. You may not have agreed with it. You may not have liked it. But you understood that there was a purpose for humanity, and humanity had a special place. But now the science said, no, that's not the case after all. Now, fast forward a few hundred years and you have a guy like Carl Sagan who says this in his book, Pale Blue Dot, he writes this, that's here, that's home, that's us. So behind me you'll see a picture of probably one of the most famous photographs ever taken, if we can kill the house lights please. Um, This is from the Voyager, Voyager spacecraft, six billion miles, or excuse me, six billion kilometers from Earth. So Carl Sagan wrote a book entitled The Pale Blue Dot, because that's the name of this photograph. And um, I know you can't see us, so let's help you out. Let's put another slide up there. That's us. This photo caught by Voyager, what you're seeing is this fortuitous stream of sunlight bathing our planet. If you were to come up close, you would see a little blue dot right there. And that's what we are sitting on right now. And Sagan goes on to say this. Our posturing, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in this universe 
are challenged by this pale blue light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. And I would say that that apart from uh, a belief in a personal, powerful God that stands behind all events, both terrestrial and celestial, that Carl Sagan is saying that's an appropriate description of the state of things. We're just lonely beings floating on a lonely speck in the enveloping darkness. And this is the cultural norm that our society feels, but they can't give expression as to why we feel this way. Is because we no longer feel and realize or understand that we actually are at the center of God's attention. That we're just a lonely planet floating around in the cosmos like millions of other planets. Whenever we remove God from our existence, our very purpose for existence disappears as well. A century after Copernicus' discovery, the Westminster Shorter Catechism says this, question number one. What is the chief end of man? Answer. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So how do we do this? Well, that's what verses 7 through 11 are about. So verses 1 through 6 makes the argument that God exists. The creation testifies of this. We just have to open our eyes. It tells us general things about God. Verse 7 through 11 tells us more specific things about God. So we move from God's self-revelation from the world to God's self-revelation to his word or from nature to scripture. And theologians have called this God's special revelation because while we can know general things about God by looking at creation, and there are many things we could imagine about God, For example, by looking at creation, what do you learn about the character or the mind of God? He's pretty big. Yes, right. Paul would say his his divine power, right? So he's big and he's got power, right? Anything else? Omnipresent. And that's because the universe, the expansiveness of the universe? Yeah, okay. What else? So he's powerful, omnipotent, omnipresent. What else? He's relational. That's interesting, Joan. Why relational? Okay. Okay. That's, that, that's, I don't know about that one, right? Because I mean, that could be, but how, how do you determine that from nature, that he's a relational God? Maybe you could see it in the societal structures of all animals, that there's a connection there, that every animal has a connection with other animals of like kind. So possibly, you know. Um, what about beautiful? What about a mind for beauty, right? As Eugene said, that when you look at a sunset or sunrise, you see the beauty of it. So these are very general things we know about God. He's omnipotent. He's omnipresent. He's beautiful. You could maybe say that he's relational if you observe the animal kingdom very well. But beyond these things, we don't know specific things about him. We wouldn't know his standards of righteousness and holiness. We wouldn't know to the depth of his relationability, right? We wouldn't know many of his characteristics or attributes, right? His holiness, his vastness, his aseity, that there's nothing like him that's self-sustaining. Even the sun itself is not self-sustaining, but God is. And so God in his kindness reveals very specifically who he is and what he's like in his word. Look at those next five verses. Probably the most potent five verses in the Bible talking about the superiority of Scripture. Now, look at verses 7 through 9. And, and just quickly, 
the psalmist writes six things about the Word of God. And he writes six titles of the Word of God, six characteristics of the Word of God, and six of the effects upon those who believe in the Word of God. Look at them right there in verse 7, the first part of verse 7. The first title is, The Law of the Lord. So it's the law, and its characteristic is that it's perfect. And the result is, it converts the soul, right? Or reviving the soul. Look at verse 7b. God's word is called the testimony of God and the characteristic that it's sure, that it can be counted upon, that it's reliable. And the effect it has on us is that it makes the simple wise. Look at verse 8, the first half of verse 8. The word of God is called the statutes of God and they are right and they rejoice the heart. The first, second half of verse 8, the word of God is called the commandments of God, and they are pure in their characteristics. They are undefiled. They are unpolluted. As a result, it enlightens our eyes. Verse 9, it calls it the fear of the Lord. And the characteristic is that it's clean, like a fire when it purges something. It's completely clean, and it endures forever. And then finally, the word of God, verse 9b, is the rules or the judgments of God, and they are true, and they're altogether righteous. Those three verses are probably the most concise statement that we have about the superiority and sufficiency of God's word in the entire Bible. Those three verses show us the practical purpose of God's word, that it reveals God's will and it bears upon us to evoke an intelligent response to him, detailed obedience and well-founded trust in who he is because he's so clear in his word. Now, if you are a Christian, those three verses should serve to excite you about getting to know God's word. Those three verses alone should be the fuel to make you want to understand what God says in the word, in his word. And not just in a sense where you know kind of chapter and verse, verses here and there, but I mean in a sense where God's teaching, his revelation of his character is woven through your own DNA in a sense, that you get who he is. That you're no longer using the word kind of like a a dictionary where if you're wondering about nuclear disarmament, you look in the concordance for what God says on nuclear disarmament and realize there's nothing here about nuclear disarmament. That's not it. You get a sense in which you understand the way he views reality and you are viewing reality the same way. That's the way in which this becomes part of your life. Now, if you're not a Christian, those three verses alone should explain to you why we make such a big deal about reading God's word. Because of all those things, God reveals about himself in Scripture. So he reveals himself in Scripture as well as he does in nature. You know, Christian, praise God that we have a God that wants to reveal himself. He's not like the gods of antiquity that were, that were mysterious and beyond access and they were fickle and they would just kind of fly off the handle or, or elicit rules and demands but then break them themselves as you see in the Roman and Greek gods because they had no understanding of what he was like. They imposed our own emotions and personalities on a bigger version of us and made their gods. But God went to great lengths to put down what he's like in his word. Ever thought about that? That God revealing himself in scripture is another sign of his mercy to us. Isn't that great? 
I don't have to worry if God's going to change his mind, if God's going to be fickle. I don't have to wait for a particular, uh, if it'll cast the dice or Urim and Thummim or any of those things. I don't have to wait for a mediator. I don't have to wait for a priest or a pastor. I have complete access right here. If I want to know the mind of God on something, it's right here for me. I don't have to rely on an impression or a feeling or a hunch. God has made it very clear. You know, in our modern vernacular, we would say something like, God has filled out his profile. I know everything about what he's like because his profile is complete, and he went on the record for it. It's all written in his word. And the psalmist is rejoicing that God has done that. Now, in conclusion, what should be our response? So the Psalm 19 is talking about how God has revealed himself in nature and revealed himself in his word. What should be our response to that? So if you're a Christian, our takeaway is God is not hard to figure out. God is not hard to figure out. He's not playing a game of 20 questions. He wants his people to know with specificity what he's like, what his word teaches, what his requirements are, what his desires are. It's all there. If you're not a Christian, the takeaway is that God is not hard to find. He made himself clearly known, has gone to great lengths to let people know who he is through creation and his word. He's not holding back his best for some special elite group that you cannot be a part of. It is available to all. That's what verses 1 through 6 are about. So Psalm 19 tells us that God is not hard to find, nor is he hard to figure out. He's gone to great lengths to make those things known in the creation that surrounds us every day and in his word that we have readily available. But most of all, as if creation and his word were not enough, God wanted to go one step further to reveal what he was like. This is what the author of Hebrews says. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. It starts this way. Long ago, the author writes, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Look at verse three here. Listen to this. He, speaking of Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. God put into creation testimony of who he was and his characteristics so that all humanity would know who he was. And God gave his word special revelation so we wouldn't just know him in a general ambiguous way but with specificity. But that wasn't enough. God revealed himself in his son Jesus Christ. In John 14, when Philip said to Jesus, hey, show us the Father, Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you don't understand? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. God has gone to great lengths to reveal himself and most particularly in the person of Jesus Christ. That's why we make a big deal about who Jesus is. Here's a little homework assignment if you're interested. Gospel of Mark. Shortest gospel, there is 16 chapters. It will take you maybe an hour to read it if you take your time. Read that once a day this entire week and you will begin to realize who and what the character of God is like by watching the man Jesus Christ. And the psalmist ends with his response in, in, in relation to God's self-revelation. He says, he is marked with humility, dependency, and hope, verses 12, 13, and 14. And he ends by saying, 
O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. I pray that's the same of us as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your self-revelation to us. Thank you that you not leave us to guess what you're like, to wonder what you might be about, but you were very clear in who you are and what you're like. Lord, I pray that if we are Christians, Psalm 19 has inspired us to know you through your word much more diligently than we've had before. And Father, if there are people here that are not a believer, not a Christian, they would begin to understand why this book is so central to who and what we believe, and that they themselves would be interested to read and discover who you are and what you are like. Father, we pray that we would respond with the kind of response that the psalmist did, with a humility, upon, a humility before you, a dependency upon you, and just hope in you. And we'll thank you for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.